Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. The Damn Thing by Ambrose Bierce Chapter 1 One does not always eat what is on the table. By the light of the tallow candle, which had been placed on one end of the table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light upon it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room, darkening it a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent and motionless. And the room, being small, not very far from the table, by extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man. Any one on the table, face upwards, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides, he was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man only was without expectation. From the blank darkness, outside came in. Through the aperture that served for a window, all the very unfamiliar noises of the night in the wilderness, the long, nameless note of distant coyote, the stilly, pulsing thrill of tireless insects and trees, strange cries of night birds so different from those of birds of day, the drone of great blundering beetles and all the mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been put half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion, but nothing of all this was noted in the company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in the matters of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces. Obvious even in the dim light of the single candle, they were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers, and woodsmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said him that he was of the world, worldly. Alibi there was that his attire, which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would have hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor, he was the only one uncovered was such that if one had considered it was an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning, and the countenance of the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have had assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority. For he was a coroner. It was by his virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects in his cabin where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and the young man entered. He clearly was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in the cities. His clothing was dusty. However, as from travel, he had in fact been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded. No one else greeted him. We have awaited you, said the coroner. It is necessary to have done this with the business tonight. The young man smiled. I am sorry to have kept you, he said. I went away, not to evade your summons, but to post to my newspaper an account of what I suppose I am called back to relate. The coroner smiled. The account that you posted to your newspaper, he said, 
differs probably from that which you will give here under oath. That, replied the other, rather holtly with a visible flush, is as you choose. I use manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction, it may go as a part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swore that it is true. The coroner was apparently not greatly affected by the young man's manifest resentment. He was silent for some moments, his eyes upon the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently, the coroner lifted his eyes and said, We will resume the inquest. The man removed their hats. The witness was sworn. What is your name? The coroner asked. William Harker. Age? Twenty-seven. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died? Near him. How did that happen? Your presence, I mean. I was visiting him at this place to shoot and fish. A part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Thank you. Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes of the memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle. And turning the leaves, he found the passage that he wanted and began to read. Chapter 2. What May Happen in a Field of Wild Oats The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun, but we had only one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by a trail through the Charpelle. On the other side was comparatively level ground, thick covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the Charpelle, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right, and partially in front, a noise of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We started a deer, said. I wish we had brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated Charpelle, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in a readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. Oh, come on, I said. You are not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you? Still, he did not reply, but catching a sight of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the pallor of it. Then I understood that we had serious business on hand, and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was now attentive to the place as before. What is it? The devil it is? What the devil is it? I asked. The damn thing, he replied. Without turning his head, his voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It, it seemed as if it was stirred by a streak of wind, 
which not only bent it but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly towards us. Nothing that I had ever seen had affected me so strangely as if this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember and tell it here because singularly enough I recollected it then that once, in looking carelessly around out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of a group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and detail, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled, almost terrified me. So rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspicion of them is noted as a menace to our safety. A warning of unthinkable calamity, so now apparently causeless movement of the herbage, and the slow, undeviating approach of the line of the disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulders and fire both barrels at the agitated grass. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud, savage cry, a scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang upon and ran away swiftly from the spot, the same instinct I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in moral agony, and mindingly with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. I inexpressibly terrified. I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven and mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder, and his whole body in violent movement from side to side. Backward and forward, his right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand, at least I could see none. The other arm was invisible at times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could disarm but a part of his body. It was as if he had been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into my view again. All of this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all of the postures of a determined wrestler and vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if though an enveloping uproar of such sounds and rage and fury as I had never heard from the throat of a man of a brute. For a moment, I only stood irresolute. Then, throwing down my gun, I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased. But with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw the same mysterious movement of the wild oats prolonging itself 
from the trampled area about the prostate man toward the edge of a wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. Chapter 3. A Man Through Naked May Be in Rags The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body altogether naked and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish-black, by bluish-black obviously caused by extravasted blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they had been beaten with a bludgeon. There were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved round to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief, which had been passed under the chin and knotted on the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Some of the jurors who had risen to get a better view repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to open the window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another, each of which he had held up for a moment of inspection, all of which were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had, in truth, seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. Gentlemen, the coroner said, we had no more evidence. I think your duty has been already explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. The foreman rose, a tall bearded man of sixty corsel clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this year last witness escape from? Mr. Harker, said the coroner gravely and tranquilly. From what asylum did you last escape? Harker flushed crimson again, but said nothing, and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir said Harker, as, as soon as he and the officer were left alone with the dead man. I suppose I am at liberty to go? Yes. Harker started to leave, but paused with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The book that you have there, I recognize it. It as Morgan's diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read it in a while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like- The book will cut no figure in this matter, replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and a scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which with various degrees of effort all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks, all the same, they had fits. Chapter 4. An Explanation from the Tomb in the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries having possibly a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence. 
Possibly the coroner thought it not the worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentions cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining is as follows. Would run in a half circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center, and again he would stand still. Barking furiously, at last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I thought at first he had gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do orders impress some olfactory center with images of the thing emitting them? September 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successfully disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time, but along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were bolted down. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Ugh, I don't like this. Several weeks' entries are missing, three leaves being torn from the book, September 27th. It has been about here again. I find evidence of its presence every day. I watched again all of last night into the same cover, gun in hand, double charged with buckshot. In the morning, the fresh footprints were there, as before. Yet I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly sleep at all. It is terrible, insupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they are fanciful, I am mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No, this is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th. I can stand it no longer. I invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7th. I have the solution of the problem. It came to me last night, suddenly, as a revelation. How simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds that we cannot hear at either end of the scale, are notes that stir no chord, that are imperfect instruments to the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song, suddenly, in any moment, at absolute the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At one point, could a leader have been visible at all? There must have been a signal, of warning or command, high and shrill above the din, but by me unheard. I have observed, too, the same simulations flight, when all were silent among not only blackbirds, but other birds. Quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It is known to seamen that a school of whales, basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean miles apart, with the convexity of the each between them, will sometimes dive at the same instant, all gone, out of sight in a moment. The signal has been sounded, too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck, who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of the cathedral are stirred by the base of the organ. As with sounds, so with colors, at each end of the solar spectrum, the chemist can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays. They present colors, integral colors in the composition of light. 
which are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. All there right, are everyone. colors that we We're cannot see. At our exit. And God help six, me, six, the six. damn thing Grab is of things. such a color. Unbuckle that seatbelt and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.